Welcome back to another episode of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England for Save Our States and very glad to welcome back a returning guest, Tara Ross, the author of so many really important books about the Electoral College, the Founding Fathers. Her her great work, Enlightened Democracy, The Case for the Electoral College, is, I, I think, still one of the best books out there about our presidential election process, although Tara has written several more, including a children's book. We're going to talk about those in just a moment. But Tara, welcome back to Six Questions. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. So let's let's jump right in. And the, the first question is about your forthcoming children's book. You you wrote one about the Electoral College, uh, which is, you know, I, I think, you know, something that, that people may be surprised to hear if they haven't seen it, but it's a beautifully illustrated, beautifully written book. For, for kids explaining why we have the Electoral College and how it works. Now you're working on a book called We Fought for Freedom, The Story of Our American Revolution. Why are you writing these books for, for children? And just share a little bit about them with our, our audience, because uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I just I think they're amazing. Everybody should have them, even if even if they don't have kids, they should have <laughs> these books. But why are you writing these books? Well, thank you. Um you know, I have kind of segued to kids' books. I wrote several adult books, you know, I guess I've been doing this for two decades now. I've written several adult books and I have changed to kid books. Um, I did the first one mostly because I figured if I don't write a kid's book about the Electoral College, I'm not entirely sure who would do it. And, um, And I don't mean that weird. It's just that I guess there aren't so many people who have taken time to study and learn the Electoral College. And I know I'm on the list. So, and I know I can do it. So I decided to go ahead and dive in and try that kid's book about the Electoral College. It was remarkably difficult to put together because, you know, you would think the adult one would be harder. The kid's books can actually be much harder to write because you don't want to accidentally not be substantive or say something wrong just because you're trying to be really high level. Um, But also you need to get the point across and need to explain it and do it in a way that kids are going to understand. So for the kid's book about the Electoral College, I... You know, I did things like instead of tyrant, I might say bully or, you know, I just try to find ways to explain it in a, in a way that makes sense. And um, it was hard, but I, you know, I did it and I, I hope and think it turned out well. Um, and then kind of what I discovered is, you know what, a lot of adults are reading these books, not just their kids. And it's either because they don't have time to pick up the adult book or because they're taking time to read it to their kid and they might not have otherwise investigated the subject on their own or, or whatever the reason might be, the kids' books are actually getting read quite a lot. And so I decided I was going to go do another one. And I, I did one about um, women in the American Revolution, kind of the unsung heroines that you don't ever hear about. And that, that one was actually a little bit easier <laughs> than the Electoral College. But the, the latest one, and again, I was just still stuck on kids' books because I feel like this is a useful um, place for me to be and to make a contribution right now. And so I did one about the American Revolution. And I have to give kudos to my daughter for this one because she kind of came up with the idea for the format. But I wanted to do something. You know, your options are, oh, do the high level book. George Washington. Yay. We won, <laughs> you know, or do something really detailed that nobody wants to read because it's way too detailed. It was an eight year long war. And so much happened. But also, I didn't want to do the high level George Washington. Yay. I wanted kids to actually walk away understanding kind of the overview of the revolution and what happened. And so what I did, and again, it was my daughter's suggestion, but I, I 
divided it into 16 topics. So the book is almost like a chapter book, except it's an illustrated kid, kid's book. So, you know, the first one is this, the, the Stamp Act. And I think I just called it Britain Gets Bossy or something. But it's just a double page spread for each of the 16 topics I chose. The Boston Tea Party, Lexington and Concord, um, you know, Saratoga, like the battle, the revolution in the South, Yorktown. And I try to just go chronologically through the whole thing, you know, piece by piece by piece. I think most kids will not sit down and read it in one Some will, you know, the, the really bookish ones will sit down and read it in one sitting. I think for most parents, how it's going to work is maybe you read one or two double page spreads and then you put it away and come back to it the next day. But by the end, I hope what happens is that we have a bunch of kids who can look at the American Revolution and say, you know what, I kind of got the general outline of the war here. You know, we had Britain getting bossy. We had shots fired at Lexington and Concord. We, the battle, the war was in the North for a long time and then it kind of moved to the South. And then we, you know, and, and you know, there's a little segments about the Declaration of Independence and some of the other non-battle things that occurred during those years. But, um, but that was the goal. Um, so it is probably a little bit different than any other kids revolutionary war book that you're going to ever pick up. Yeah. It does have more substance, but um, you know, I hope that the way I've divided it up makes it presentable for kids and easy for them to learn. Um, I don't know. My, my daughter told me that she, she, you know, I don't know. She liked, she was her idea. She liked the way it turned out. She said it helped her to remember the outline of the war. She is a little bit older now, but um, she said she'd wish she'd had it when she was in seventh grade taking American history because it would have given her a, an, you know, like kind of the broad brush. Yeah. This is, this is the that's, overview. That's great. Britain gets bossy. That is, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great way to start the book. I love that. When does it come out? It comes out in the middle of November. So okay. wish me luck because I turned it's it in time. in June and okay. there's so many supply chain. There's so much stuff going on yeah. that, I mean, it's, I think it should be on time. Just in time for Christmas. That's, yes, that's, for Christmas. that's great. Well, we will, uh, yeah, we'll have to alert people. We'll, we'll certainly alert our viewers and listeners when the book comes out. That, that Thank sounds you. exciting. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit. Uh, our, our second question is about the, the substance of all of this and the controversies that we see today. I mean, people are out there tearing down statues of many of our founding fathers and you know you're you're writing about them and trying to communicate their greatness to children um what what is it that people need to understand you know especially if they're out there just sort of as observers not as partisans in these fights and and they're hearing you know well jefferson he was a slave owner he was a hypocrite mm -hmm. you know so many of these founders didn't live up to their own standards and we need to sort of you know de-emphasize them or or even denigrate them what, Tara, what do you want people to know to, to sort of maybe check that that impulse? What are they missing? You know, it's so frustrating to me because founders and they look at them through mod a modern lens and they act as if the founders lived in our time with, you know, knowing all the stuff we know and having seen all the stuff we've seen, which of course is not true. And I think it, to really understand the founders, what you have to do is remember what the world looked like when they lived. I mean, kings could boss you around. That's why I called it you know, Great Britain, Britain gets bossy. Like kings could boss you around. They could, you know, tell you what church to go to. They could, there was, women were treated badly everywhere. 
you know, many religions, Jews were treated badly in many, many parts of the world. There was slavery, not just in America, but all over the globe. There were so many problems. Freedom was not a thing. Like democracy was really not, you know, we think of it again, like the modern version of it. And that's not what existed at all. So in the face of this, the founders did something incredible. They, they realized none of this is right. This is, we, you know, this is not how God created us. This is not how human beings are. We have a right to self-determination, to make up our own mind about certain things. We have the right to pursue, you know, our own goals and to be successful or to fail. But, but they knew that this is not something that is right for the king to be so bossy like he was or for any king or any monarch to be so bossy. And so they took the first huge, gigantic step towards freedom. And they stood up to the king and they fought a revolution for eight years. And that was, uh, it was unbelievably bold what they did. And it was an unbelievably like important first step towards where we are today. And we act like, you know, like they could just leap from tyranny to complete and total democracy freedom all in one bound. But that's never how it was. It's a, it is a marathon. I, I use this analogy a lot. It's a marathon, you know, and they ran the first leg and they passed the baton to the next generation and said, now it's your turn, right? And so every generation of Americans, their job isn't to criticize the generation that came before them for not running the whole entire race, but to look at their segment of the race and say, what do I need to do here now to make sure that I'm doing my part? Okay, they ran their leg in the, in the marathon that's all they had to do. It wasn't their job to run the whole, it was impossible to run the whole race in one lifetime. They couldn't do it. They got it started. And, and, you know, I think again, we should not underestimate how important, how hard it is to get started on something like this. And you can ask anybody facing any difficult problem, someone trying to, you know, get out of alcoholism or, you know, think about these kinds of problems that face people. The first step is the hardest step. It is always the hardest step. You know, and so they did that. And who are we to sit here and criticize them because they, they oh, oh, you only did the first step? <laughs> you know, that was the hardest one. So, I, you know, I do. I tell these stories because I want the next generation to know we can be so, so proud of our founders and who they were and what they did. But also, instead of looking backwards at them and endlessly criticizing them, we just need to look at ourselves and say, OK, now what are we doing? To, to move the baton further? Are we moving the baton further or are we starting to go backwards? Because if we're starting to go backwards, then it's, you know, it's time we, we do a lot more self-examination, uh, introspection and figure out what we're doing. I, I love that. I love that uh, illustration of a marathon relay. That's, I, I, that, I, I don't think I've ever heard that before. That's just, it seems just perfect to me to, to capture what's going on. Question number three goes a little bit to where you you ended up, I think. There's a lot of talk in our country today about how divided we are. Are we heading toward another civil war? Tara Ross, is this hyperbole? How concerned are you? What do we need to do? Um, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I think we should also just because some people talk about civil war doesn't mean, you know, a hot civil war. Right. With like mm -hmm. battles. It could just be a cold civil war also. So, yeah, I mean, I do kind of think we're in something like that, to be honest. 
But I think the problem is that we are spending so much time labeling people. Like that's what I just noticed about our world today. You know, anything like, are you a Trump supporter? What are your pronouns? What are, you know, are you, we're talking so much about what a woman is, you know, but everything involves a label. Everything involves me versus them. You know, like there's camps of people and, and it's like, nobody can listen to each other anymore. And so, you know, I just think anything we can do to encourage people to talk and to listen um, for our to, to elect leaders who will do that and not the leaders who are trying to push us further into our little boxes where we, you know, don't know how to like even recognize our fellow citizen. You know, I do think, you know, you didn't really ask me this, but I do think that two years of masks made it worse because you can't see your neighbor, you know, and, and you're, you're viewing them as a a vector of disease that's going to, that's out to get you. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a bioweapon. None of the person standing next to you in the, the grocery store line is not a bioweapon waiting to explode on you. They're your fellow citizen. And especially once, you know, we take our masks off, smile at each other, talk to each other. I mean, I think we need to do a lot more of this kind of stuff, which for some reason we got out of the habit of doing for two years. It makes a difference. Our country is so angry but we separated ourselves from each other for so long. And I don't, I don't think it was, it, you know, it didn't stop COVID. <laughs> so COVID's still here. So I think we need to just seriously reevaluate a lot of the stuff that we're doing right now and how it's affecting us because I, that was just a whole, um, you know, it, it seemed small. It seemed like we were just going to deal with one virus. I could do not disturb on my phone and then it still went off in me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> anyway, that, that's, I, I think I kind of answered your question and yeah. kind of answer your question, but, um, but I think that we are in a big, huge mess right now. And it's, it's, it's a lot of factors. There's some political factors. There's some factors about how we dealt with COVID. There's a whole mess of stuff in there, but I, we need to, as just individually as human beings start thinking about how we're approaching the people around us and start listening to the people around us and, and our friends, whether we agree with them or not. Talking on our six questions podcast with Tara Ross. She's the author of numerous books, including books for, for children, the forthcoming we fought for freedom, the story of our American revolution and books for adults, including about the electoral college. Tara, you and I have been working to preserve the electoral college for a long time now, and uh, you you started before I did, and really are are one of the two people, along with Michael Yulman, who who really piqued my interest and educated me about this. Um, going going back, uh, you know, then, then you and I probably want to think about it at this point. But uh, uh, there's a poll that came out earlier this year showing that most Americans think we should just get rid of the electoral college. Tara, what? What do you say to folks who who say that? I mean, it's just crazy to me. I, I think <laughs> it's crazy to me. We have we have come so um, or we have wandered so far away from an understanding of our Constitution that I, you know, it does make sense in a soundbite. I think the average Amer American hears that and they're like, yeah, you know, well, we just needed the Electoral College because we didn't have instant communication and you know, life was hard and we didn't, people didn't know all the candidates and, you know, a much, bunch of stuff that was true in the late 1700s, but it's not true anymore. So we should just get rid of that antiquated thing that is still stuck in the constitution. 
Well, of course, none of that is true. The reason the Electoral College was created was because humans are imperfect, because power corrupts, because left to their own devices, a bare majority will always tyrannize even very large minority groups. You know, you can imagine big city uh, residents just not understanding what life is like as a farmer. I don't think it's even always ill-intentioned. It's just not understanding, not knowing what's important. Life in a big city is nothing like life in a small town in Missouri, you know? And so in, you use, um, you know, get the way you get yourself to work is going to be different. You're going to be on a subway. You're going to be crammed with people. Everything is so, so different as opposed to living in a small town where you don't need mass transit. <laughs> like that would be crazy. There's like 10 people to use it, you know? So it's just a very, very different life. And, and it would be easy, you know, not to pick on big city. I live in a big city, so I'm not really trying to pick on big city residents, but it's, it would be easy for us just to forget what life is like elsewhere and, and to accidentally make rules that don't make any sense to somebody that lives in a different situation than we do. And we would outnumber them. And so, you know, the founders knew all these dynamics. They knew that they knew what had happened to the failed democracies of the past. They knew that because of these imperfections of human nature, pure, simple democracies tend to implode. And so what you need is a way to be self-governing, but to also put checks on this tendency towards tyranny. And so they did that in a whole mess of ways. They gave us a Senate with one state, one vote representation to balance out the the House with one person, one vote representation. They gave us presidential vetoes. They gave us supermajority requirements to do things like amend the Constitution. And they gave us the Electoral College, which is just part and parcel of this system where you want, at the end of the day, you want the people to rule themselves, but you want to put up just hurdles that have to be overcome by unreasonable majorities. And you, you anticipate that most of the time when the majority is unreasonable, they won't be able to get over the hurdle. But when they're reasonable, they will. It just might take a little bit longer in certain circumstances. But this, you know, for government to be slow, is it protects us. <laughs> so it protects us as we might have, not to go back to COVID again, sorry, but as we might have seen during COVID where all these governors declared that they had emergency power to do whatever. And then, you know, with one swipe of the pen, all of a sudden you're out of school, you're wearing a mask, your business is shut down. Maybe your business is gone. And, and that, that stuff was never supposed to happen. That checks and balances and slow government is supposed to stop this kind of, you know, abrupt, uh, hasty action that can be so, so um, damaging. Yeah. Well, obviously, that, that makes sense to me. And, and I know that, uh, you know, our, our viewers, our listeners, you and I will continue to make that case to the American people that the Electoral College is, is just right there at the core of our system of government. You know, one of those checks and balances that that everyone sort of talks about. But then I think we, we sort of forget that all of these things, you know, even the ones that we don't know as much about or don't see, you know, in action all the time are just as important as uh, as many of the the others, the sort of more obvious ones like the Bill of Rights that people mm -hmm. you know, kind of get put in their in their face all the time, as if that's the whole Constitution, and they forget about these structures that, in some ways, are are even more fundamental. Uh, you've written a lot, Tara, about George Washington, and so question question number five is about Washington. What uh, share with our listeners as you've researched Washington? 
what's what's a story or, or an aspect of his life that uh, that you've come to learn that people may not have heard about that sort of uh, you know either maybe exemplifies his character or uh, the the way in which he was he was such an instrumental figure you know really the 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 father of our country if you have to pick out just one of the founding fathers. So probably my favorite little known kind of trivia about George Washington is he had a horrible temper, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and I like it that about him because it humanizes him. Um, also, you know, he got so, he worked so hard to discipline himself and to overcome that and to get to a better place. And he did such a good job of it that now, you know, most people, when they think of George Washington, they think he was fairly stoic, kind of a calm kind of a guy. He was not, <laughs> you know, he wasn't. He was just very, very disciplined and he worked very hard to get to that to that point. And I mean, I anyway, I just love that. I, it gives me hope, you know, anytime I'm struggling with something that I want to overcome and do better. Or if I want to give an example to my kids, you know, it, it, hey, you know what? You're going to be OK. This is what George Washington did. <laughs> you know, yeah. he had a terrible temper. Did you know? But um, one story in that regard, I said, this is actually a time when he didn't control the temper so well. <laughs> but um, there was a battle of Monmouth, which, which was um, kind of in the middle of the war. But it, anyway, yeah. he, there, there was one of the generals that had gone forward and he was supposed to be kind of harassing the back of the British army. And, and he, the, the general didn't want to be doing, he didn't like that George Washington was the commander in chief. He thought he knew better. Or he didn't really want to be doing what he had been tasked with doing. And so he probably gave it a half-hearted effort, I'm just guessing. And so he, he orders a retreat. And George Washington is coming up with the rest of the main part of the army. And he sees this retreat coming towards him. And he's, he's like, what? <laughs> he goes right in there. And he turns the whole retreat around. Now, there were some reports that said that he swore that day until the leaves shook in the trees. Um, which, But I have to say, in all fairness, that... There's, there's some doubt about whether that person that was saying that was exaggerating or not, but I still kind of like to think that maybe, you know, he had a human moment there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but either way, he turned the retreat around and he, of course, George Washington ends up winning the battle. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's a good story about him. Yeah, you know, I, I was, before you, you even mentioned that, as you were talking about his temper, I was, I was thinking about how I, I think that people do miss that, that a lot of his moments of great bravery I think when you understand who Washington was, he channeled his fury into being willing to stand up, you know, in front of musket balls and cannonballs. And, and so, you know, he turned what could have been this this tremendous, uh, you know, weakness in his character into something that became this great strength because mm -hmm. he was able to use that emotional energy in a positive way instead of in a negative way. I Yeah, I. I I, I completely agree. I think uh, understanding understanding Washington's sort of failures and temptations, all of a sudden you realize just how truly great he was. It wasn't that he was, you know, it wasn't that that he was, uh, you know, sprang from the earth as this stoic figure. Stoic, <laughs> perfect. Like we could never hope to be that person. No, yeah. he was a human being that struggled just like we do, and he, but he overcame with discipline and hard work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Tara, last question on our six questions podcast. Uh, since you've been here before, I won't ask you who's your favorite founding father and why, because we've, we've already talked about that. But in your opinion, who do you think is, is one of the most underappreciated of the founding fathers? So, you know, I, when you said that, I'm thinking, I wonder who I said was my favorite. I probably said George Washington, huh? but I but I 
I have such a hard time with any question that makes me drill something down to one thing or one person. Um, my kids get really frustrated. They'll say, what's your favorite color, mom? I'm like, I don't have a favorite color. <laughs> like, for what? To, to wear a dress, yeah. to paint on the wall, to like, to, you know, like for what? <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know. It depends. So when you say that to me, honestly, what I, the thing that leaps into my mind is not just one person, but like dozens and dozens of people, like the little known people that nobody knows anything about. Yeah. Um, which is why my second kid's book was about little known revolution. I mean, Abigail Adams is not in there. You know, Martha Washington's not in there. It's the people you've never heard of. Like um, there was a woman who, when, when all the, tr the militia were trying to get to Boston after the shot heard around the world at Lexington and Concord, the British were under siege in Boston and militia from all over the state were rushing to go help, to go help the siege. But that meant traveling for days in some cases to get there on foot. Yeah. So she didn't know what to do to help. So, but she didn't know how to bake bread and she didn't have cheese and she didn't, you know, she, and she had cows that could, and so she, she put out tables along the side of the road and she starts, started feeding people, you know, and so, or you've got, um, you know, the, the woman who was the first woman, she, it was a woman publisher who was the first to publish the declaration of independence with all the names of all the signers. That was a woman who did that. And she um, she didn't typically put her name on things because because she was a woman. And most publishers were men, and you know, or whatever. She just she just did. But in this one, she did, and mm. she it was kind of her own way of signing the declaration on her own. You know what I'm saying? Because she could have she could have hanged for that just like anybody else. Yeah. And so I think of all these kind of numerous, and you know, it's not just the revolution. You asked me about the founders, but. Um, any world war that we've had, you think like World War II, you know, or or any of these conflicts in American history where we really just needed people to stand up and and you know help, just help and do the right thing. And it's the numerous efforts, the all the people that come together and say, I don't have much to give, but this is what I can do. And whether it's cooking or whether it's just this one battle, I'm gonna um, yeah, I'm gonna go out there and I'm I'm wrapping up wounds and I'm doing what I can or just whatever. There's so many numerous individuals that will never appear in a history book that will you will never hear about unless you really work hard to go find them. And even when there's some that none of us will ever know about, like they're, they're, they, don't, they don't appear anywhere. Like we just will never, ever know. Yeah. And those are the people I think of because the war could not have been won. If it was only George Washington, only James Madison, only Thomas Jefferson, we would not be here. We'd be, you know, part of Britain or something, you know? So yeah. it's... And I think the other thing I like about that, just to wrap up, is is any of us can do that, right? Like I think so often the problems of the world seem so big, and it like we were talking got stuff going on in Ukraine, or just the all the energy problems. Like there's just so division problems, whatever. Just look at your world and see what you have to contribute. How can I give back to my community? How can I give back to my country? And, you know, for me, it tends to be writing and research because I'm good at that, you know, or maybe it's I'll go be an election judge or maybe it's, you know, I'm just I have some friends that I think that they would probably like to hear about this part of history or whatever it is. And I'm just going to take them to lunch and go talk to them about it for a while because I think they, they're amenable to hearing that and they just don't take the time to do it on their own. I don't know. Like I think about what you can yeah. do in your life. There's always something. I think that's an outstanding answer. A great place to wrap up this episode of Six Questions. Tara Ross, thank you so much for being a returning guest here on the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks to all of you for listening, for watching. 
please uh, give this podcast a review wherever you are uh, watching or, or listening to it and share it with your friends. We'll be back next week. I'm trending with for Save Our States. Thanks for watching.